Good morning. How you guys doing? You ready? All right, put on your seatbelts. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. This morning, Randy approached me and said uh, he's got an analogy for Colossians. It's like a German chocolate cake, rich and deep, but you can't take a lot of it at once. Is that, was that it? Okay. So we're going to do a little piece today. Last week, we looked at verses uh, in chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. And today, we're going to sort of continue in verses 19 through 23, sort of part of one section. These verses are really at the heart of this book the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to this church. They're the clearest. So they're, the, they're the, the heart of the theme we have, the theme of the book, the clearest proclamation of the supremacy of Christ anywhere in the Bible. And if you remember, they, along with the entire letter, came about in response to attacks from uh, false teachers. Teachers claiming that the Colossian Christians needed more than Christ. They need to follow other philosophies, uh, check out these visions, do certain religious practices. And so Epaphras, a Christian from Colossae, travels to Rome where Paul is under house arrest. His purpose is to get Paul's help in combating these false teachings. And Paul's help comes in the form of this brilliant, spirit-inspired letter to the church. Now in this letter... Uh, Paul could have attacked directly these false teachers. But instead, he wisely chooses to proclaim that Christ, subtext, not these false teachers, not their false teachings that are uh, empty deceit, is greater than all, fully sufficient, supreme over all. And what I'm going to do as we begin is to read verses 15 through 18, making a few summarizing comments after I read them, and then read verses 19 to 23. Uh, This will help us review and sort of connect what we saw last week with what we're going to see this morning. Of Jesus Christ, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, first, supreme, From these verses, we saw Christ's preeminence, his supremacy in three specific areas. First, supremacy of his character. He is the image of the invisible God, very God of very God. Second, we saw his supremacy in creation. He's the firstborn, highest rank of all creation because he's the creator of all creation. For by him, all things were created. And he's the purpose of all creation. All things were created for him. And finally, he's the sustainer of creation. In him, all things hold together. So Christ is supreme in his character and his creation. And third, we saw last week, Christ's supremacy in the church. He is the head of the body, the church. So that was last week, flying by. Now we continue, but I wanted to give you the context. We continue by reading the verses we'll look at today. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Still talking about Christ, of course. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Again, verses 15 through 18, we saw Christ's supremacy in his character, creation, and in the church. Now, as we look at verses 19 through 23, we're going to focus on one more area of Christ's supremacy. Specifically, his work of reconciliation. That's the word for today. Reconciliation. Say it with me. Reconciliation. All right. So we need to understand what this word means. We probably have an idea. The word reconcile or reconcile that Paul uses here in verses 19 and 22 are the same Greek word. Apokatalaso. Apokatalaso. Man, I thought I practiced that one, and I'm really blowing it. Let me look at it. Apocatalasso. That's it. And it simply means to restore to a former state of harmony. When two people are separated or estranged, particularly a husband and a wife, we ask, is there any chance of reconciliation, restoration of their former, uh, hopefully somewhat harmonious relationship? I just finished listening to an audiobook. If you listen to an audiobook, can you say you read the book? Is that okay? It sounds, uh, I read this book, but really it was just, somebody read it to me. But anyway, it's a book titled American Ulysses, A, a Life of Ulysses S. Grant. And I, if you're interested in history at all, especially that time period, I recommend it. And for any who don't know, Grant, Ulysses S., was the commanding general of the Union forces at the end of the Civil War. He accepted the South's uh, General Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in Northern Virginia in 1865, and later he became the 18th President of the United States. And what most of us know him for is he's on the $50 bill. Oh, maybe you have never seen one of those, I don't know. (laughs) I had to use one the other day. I was buying eggs, you know. (laughs) And in both roles, Grant in both roles as commanding general and as president was involved in what has been called or was called uh, reconstruction. Reconstruction began following the South surrender and it lasted until 1877, so about 12-year period. It was a time in which efforts were made uh, to reintegrate the southern states from the Confederacy and four million newly freed former slaves all into the United States of America. And the thing that struck me as I read about the Reconstruction was that it was actually an attempt at reconciliation, an attempt to bring back a former state of, if not harmony, at least functionality in the United States. The southern states, if you might remember, 
Some of you might have been around. No, I won't go there again. Uh, they seceded from the, the Union. They rebelled against their nation. They had, uh, they had forced a war with their fellow countrymen. But once defeated, by necessity, there needed to be some kind of reconciliation. I mean, in a war with a country that, a, a different country across the sea, not so necessary. But we had to, like, try to get along. A restoration of the severely broken relationship between the North and the South. Now, Reconstruction, this attempt at reconciliation, was fraught with difficulty, mainly because the, Southern, the Southerners' unwillingness to accept that their former slaves now had rights as citizens, especially the right to vote. But eventually, all the Southern states were readmitted into the Union, and there was, at least on the surface, much-needed reconciliation. So reconciliation, this word, can be taken between individuals, between nations, really between any, anywhere, any relationship that's been broken. But nowhere is reconciliation more needed than between God and man, God and humanity. We, humanity, in Adam, were once in harmonious relationship with God. But like the South, Adam rebelled. But his rebellion, his sin, was against God himself. And each one of us, since then, proves we are sons and daughters of Adam by our personal rebellion, our personal sin, our disobedience, our rebellion against God. At the fall and since the fall, humanity's relationship with God was and has been broken. As the prophet Isaiah proclaimed, By, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Because of our iniquities, because of our sin, our unholiness, our unrighteousness, there exists a separation, a gulf between God and man. But God, and that gulf would have existed for all eternity if God had not acted, but God has provided a way, a way of reconciliation, a way of restoration of relationship with Him. And it's this reconciliation that Paul writes about in our passage for today. And as we examine these verses, it's my prayer that for any who are not reconciled to God, any who hear this message, who read these words in Colossians, if they're not reconciled to God, they'll see what God through Christ has done to restore their relationship with Him. And they'll respond by trusting in Him, by being reconciled to God. And for those of us who have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, it's my prayer that today we'll grow in our understanding our appreciation for and proclamation of Christ's supreme work of reconciliation. And, and yes, I did say proclamation of. Because that's what Paul instructs, not here in Colossians, but in his second letter to the church in Corinth, which will be sort of our, sort of our secondary text. We're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, along with Colossians in many ways. After declaring... Christ's great work of reconciliation, Paul writes, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So as we turn to Colossians, 
in our study of Christ's supreme work of reconciliation, know that it's both a reconciliation we experience and a reconciliation we proclaim to others. So you might want to jot down a few notes to help you proclaim this message of reconciliation. And the first thing Paul proclaims to the Colossians is God's pleasure in Christ's reconciling work. Verse 19, we read, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now this strongly reinforces what Paul has said earlier, written about Christ being the image of the invisible God. That seeing Christ means that you're seeing God. As opposed to the false teachers who were promoting other things besides Christ, Paul is making it clear that everything you need, the fullness of God, is found in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.9 says it even more explicitly. For in Him, Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Fullness means that the totality of the divine power and attributes is in Christ. The whole fullness, all the full fullness... Jesus Christ is the full, complete, total God. Also notice that that the fullness is said to dwell in Him. The word dwells means to inhabit permanently. It's not temporary. The fullness of God was, is, and will remain in Jesus Christ. This means that the Colossians and you and I need not look anywhere else except to Christ for full revelation of God's nature. As you see him in the Gospels, as we read about him in the epistles, and as we hear him preached, we can know what God is like. Again, we saw this last week, and Paul is, and therefore I am reinforcing it again here. But there's something new as well here in verse 19. We also learn that God, presumably sort of God the Father, found pleasure, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ. This, uh, D.A. Carson says, expresses the sovereignty and mystery of God's will. The incarnation, God becoming man, Emmanuel, God with us, was God's plan, and it pleased him to put it into action. Now, why was God pleased uh, by this? Well, verse 20 goes on to explain. God was pleased that his fullness dwelt in bodily form in Jesus Christ, and, or that... There's uh, this Greek word, it's spelled in English, K-A-I, and it's just this general connector, and it's translated all sorts of ways, uh, depending on the context. And so it could be, and I think it might be better as that. So, uh, the fullness of Christ dwelt bodily in Christ, that through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven. So God was pleased to fully dwell in Christ because through Him, all things would be reconciled to God. And one implication of this is that it was necessary for the fullness of God to dwell in Christ in order that Christ reconcile to Himself all things. Only the perfect God-man could reconcile man to God. Only the perfect God-man could become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of man, of humanity, of the world. Now notice Paul says all things, whether on earth or in heaven, will be reconciled to God. Some have taken this to mean uh, universal salvation. Every human and even the demonic forces will be reconciled to God. 
But that doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture or even, as we'll see, the book of Colossians. I like how the ESV Bible puts it. As the Prince of Peace, Jesus will ultimately quell all rebellion against God and His purposes. For believers, this means present reconciliation to God as His friends. As for non-believers and the demonic powers, Christ's universal reign of peace will be enforced on them. For the rebellion will be decisively defeated by Christ as conquering kings so that they can no longer do any harm in the universe. They will no longer be able to harm God's creation because God means to reconcile all things, including creation to Himself. Creation suffered a curse because of the fall, the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 17 and 18, God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells what man's sin has meant for creation, but he promises reconciliation, restoration for creation. For the creation was subject to futility. Back in Genesis, when Adam sinned, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So God subjected it, but there's hope. And now here's the hope that the creation itself will be set free from, the bond, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation, when, when, when we're reconciled to God fully, humanity, the end of the creation will also be restored. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation, the world, is not as it is meant to be. It's in bondage to corruption. It groans to be set free, to be brought back into harmony with God like it was before the fall. And Paul promises restoration, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. One day the curse will be reversed. The thorns and thistles will be no more. Creation will be restored to its proper state, and that will be awesome. But that's not the main focus of these verses. It's there in the all things. The main focus, however, the main source of God's pleasure of dwelling in Christ is the reconciliation of sinners to himself. That's what we're going to see moving forward. God was pleased to have His fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to bring about the reconciliation of all things. Reconciliation, salvation, is God's joyous work. And that takes us to our second point. God's procedure in Christ's reconciling work. Procedure. How's it done? How does it take place? How is this reconciliation accomplished? accomplished. What is God's procedure of reconciliation? And the answer to this question is seen both in verses 20 and 22. In verse 20 we read, and through him Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, uh, reconciliation and peace, very interlinked there, by the blood of his cross, making peace with God, reconciling with God. How? By the blood of of his cross. And then in verse 22 we read, he's not he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. 
God's procedure of reconciliation of all things, especially, if you will, sinners, is the death of Christ. The blood of Christ shed on the cross. And it's important for us to understand that this method of reconciliation is God's plan. It's God who takes the initiative. We did not invent this. We did not think of this. This is not man's religion of works. It's God's uh, reconciliation with humanity. In Romans 5, Paul writes, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It was while we were God's enemies that, we, that He reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son. It's because of Christ's death on the cross that, that peace can be made with enemies. It's through Christ, due to nothing we have done, that we are reconciled to God. We see this also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All this is from God, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. I hope you see, reconciliation to God is explicitly a one-sided procedure. He does virtually everything. All we must do, as we will see, is respond in faith to trust in Christ's work of reconciliation, to trust in Christ's death on the cross, the shedding of His blood, to provide us with forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. So let's be very clear. Our reconciliation with God took nothing less than the death of God's only Son, the perfect God-man. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. And how did the death of Christ accomplish our reconciliation with God? Verse 21 in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Even though God the Son was sinless, perfect, holy, righteous in all ways, for our sake, on that cross... God the Father made God the Son to be sin, to be a sacrifice for sin. I'm not totally sure. I know everything it means that Jesus was made to be sin. But what I do know is Jesus took my sin upon Himself. I do know that for my sake, He endured the shame of the cross. For my sake, He endured separation from His Father. For my sake, He took my sin for which I deserve death upon Himself, and He died for me. For my sake, He experienced the wrath of God that rightly belonged to me. For my sake, He did all this, that in Him I might become the righteousness of God. That I, that we, who are in Christ, we who've trusted in Christ, might become righteous before God. And therefore experience reconciliation with God. Only the righteous are reconciled. And the only way to become righteous is to trust in Christ's sacrificial death on the cross to provide your righteousness. So God, for our sake, allowed, caused, probably a better word, His Son to become sin 
that we might become the righteousness of God. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Christ became sin and experienced the fate of the sinner for the sake of the sinner. The cross is the ultimate evidence of just how far the love of God was willing to go to accomplish our reconciliation. So we've seen God's procedure in reconciling in the reconciling work of Christ. But now we need to see God's pleasure in His procedure. God was not only pleased with that the fullness of God dwelt in Christ, He was pleased with the outcome of the fullness of God dwelling in Christ. He was pleased with the procedure in Christ's reconciling work. Let me be clear. It was not only God's plan and pleasure that Christ become a man, that Christ, God, become man, it was also God's plan and pleasure that He suffered and died on the cross that we might be reconciled to Him. Writing of the coming Messiah, Isaiah, and I'm quoting the NASB here, says, But the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering, he will, he will see his offering, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. This is a, a little hard to understand. It's a prophecy of the coming Messiah, a prophecy that was fill, fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So was God pleased to crush Jesus for the sake of crushing Jesus? Was God pleased to cause Jesus grief for the sake of grief? No, it was the purpose of the crushing grief that pleased God. It was the fact that Christ, the Messiah, would become a guilt offering for lost sinners. That through His death on the cross, all things would be reconciled to God. And that's what we see in our third point. God's purpose in Christ's reconciling work. Verse 21 sets the stage. And you, speaking to the Colossians and speaking to you and me, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who you were. If Paul's going to explain the purpose of Christ's reconciling work, he must first establish the need for Christ's reconciling work, right? That's what verse 21 does clearly. In Romans, Paul said we were God's enemies before reconciliation. Here he says we were alienated from God. We were alienated enemies of God. That word alienated is a powerful word in the Greek. It means to be totally shut out from, to be shut out from fellowship, to be shut out from intimacy. It indicates a persistent and permanent condition. And the reason for our continuous alienation from God is our continuous unrighteousness. That is a mind that's hostile to Him and a body that performs evil deeds against Him. I know uh, in our culture, it's fashionable to believe that people are basically good. Uh, if that's somewhere in you, you need to root it out. I'm going to help you right now. People say, if only children could be raised properly, they'd turn into adults who live properly and do good. But the Bible teaches and experience verifies that without Christ, having a hostile mind and doing evil deeds is the way people are. But again, humanity doesn't like to hear that. 
when a, a great 18th century Christian woman, her name was Lady Huntington, Huntington, excuse me, invited one of her uh, friends, the Duchess of Buckingham, so we're in the uppity thing back then, to hear George Whitfield preach, she received this reply after hearing George Whitfield preach. This is what the Duchess of Buckingham said. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with the high rank and good breeding. We don't like to hear it. We don't like to hear that we're sinners. Paul's pronouncement that we are alienated from God, hostile with every evil, with, with evil behavior, may sound a bit harsh to us too, but it's terribly true. Theologian Charles Hodge points out the overwhelming need of humanity. This is a little long, but I think it's worth our consideration. Uh, I'll preface this with the words, Without Christ... Charles Hodge says, Our guilt is great because our sins are exceedingly numerous. It is not merely outward acts of unkindness and dishonesty with which we are charged. Our habitual and characteristic state of mind is evil in the sight of God. Our pride, vanity, and indifference to His will and the welfare of others, our selfishness, our loving the creature more than the Creator, are continuous violations of His holy law. We have never been or done what that law requires us to do, uh, to be and to do. We've never had that delight in the divine perfection, that, that sense of dependence and obligation, that fixed purpose to do the will and promote the glory of God, which constitutes the love which, it, which is our first and highest duty. Pause there for a second. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first, the greatest commandment. How do you think the world's doing it that? How do you think we're doing it that? If that's the first and greatest commandment, that would be the first, the violation of that, the first and greatest evil in the world. We are always sinners. We are all, we are at all times and under all circumstances in opposition to God because we are never what His law requires us to be. If we have never made it our purpose to do His will, if we have never made His glory the end of our actions, then our lives have been an unbroken series of transgressions. Our sins are not to be numbered by the conscious violations of duty. They are as numerous as the moments of our existence. You don't get to decide what sins you've committed and not. God does. Both Paul and Hodge make the terrible condition of humanity clear. We're alienated, hostile, evil doers. But, but God, thank God for His reconciling purpose, which we see in verse 22. What we just read would remain forever indulged in every human if it weren't for but God, what we see in verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. One of the, on the one hand, Scripture declares the darkest possibilities for man apart from Christ. Alienated. 
enemies of God, hostile to God, sinful, evil, hell-bound, wrath-receivers, etc. But on the other hand, for those who are in Christ, who trust in Christ alone, Scripture gives the highest, noblest vision, reconciled to God, forgiven and saved from our sin, justified, righteous, holy, blameless, heaven-bound, eternal life receivers. When one is reconciled to Christ, he or she will present will be presented before Him as holy, without blame, beyond reproach. This reconciled person is then in Christ, therefore a co-heir of Christ's promises and will remain forever holy in, glory, in the glorious presence of a holy God. To be in the presence of a holy God, you too must be holy. And it's only because of Christ's reconciling work that we're made holy and blameless before Him. If we've been reconciled, this is our uh, position in Christ. We are before God right now, reconciled, holy and blameless. And it will be in this life increasingly true as we, through the process of sanctification, grow to be more like Christ. Grow to be more like who God has declared us to be. R.C. Sproul tells us Luther, Martin Luther, used a simple analogy to explain the process of our reconciliation, our salvation, and sanctification. He describes the condition of a patient who was mortally ill. This guy's dying. The doctor proclaimed that he, has, he had medicine that would surely cure the man. The instant the medicine was administered, the doctor declared that the patient was well. At that instant, the patient still had the symptoms of his sickness, but as soon as the medicine passed his lips and entered his body, the patient was guaranteed wellness and began to get well. So it is with our reconciliation and sanctification. As soon as we truly believe, that very instant we're fully cured and we start to get better. The process of becoming pure and holy is underway and its future completion is guaranteed. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, in light of Christ's supreme yet costly for Him work of reconciliation on our lives, a reconciliation with the purpose of presenting us holy and blameless above reproach before God, that's the Christ who died for you desires died for you that you might be holy and blameless, we ought to do everything in our power and the power of the Spirit that dwells within us to be practically blameless and holy in this life. We ought to fully submit to the work of God's Spirit in our lives. Daily, moment by moment even, inviting Him to continue to transform us into what we've already become in Christ Jesus. That is blameless and holy above reproach. We should be moving in that direction in our lives. We are in Christ and therefore we must live like Christ. We must submit ourselves ever more completely to the work of God in our lives. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I think that's the heart of God's pleasure in the reconciliation through Christ. That we, uh, formerly lost sinners, formerly alienated from God, enemies of God, hostile to God, 
formerly engaged in evil deeds, we are now in Christ, holy and blameless before Him. And we're now in the process of becoming who we are in Christ. That's the purpose of Christ's reconciling work. And that brings us to our final point. We've seen God's pleasure, procedure, and purpose in the reconciling work of Christ. But in verse 23, he turns to the reconciled. And we see our, and uh, no P word here, it's a, new, it's, a new, it's a new person, our response to Christ's reconciling work. In verse 22, Paul had said that by Christ's death, God had reconciled us so we can come before him holy and blameless. Then verse 23, we read, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a servant. So our response to Christ's reconciling work in our lives is, is not good deeds to balance out the evil deeds that we formerly did. It's not practicing certain religious rituals. It's continuance in the faith. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved, that we are reconciled to God. And it's by continuing in faith, trust in Christ, that we live out that reconciliation, that relationship with God that we've been granted. We're to be stable and steadfast in our faith, holding firm to the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, not following, you can, you can just see it there, not following those false teachers. That's, that's the thing. Don't follow these false teachings. Be firmly rooted in the gospel, continuing to trust in the gospel that's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So, so it's a big, big deal. Trusting, trusting the gospel that is, is, I think he means being proclaimed and will continue to be proclaimed throughout the entire world. And don't forget me, Paul says, this is, this is the gospel I proclaim. This reconciliation with God, this is the gospel I'm a minister of. So put simply, our response to Christ's reconciling work is continuing in the true faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not diverting into empty philosophies. Now this might seem like, since Paul begins with, if indeed, it might seem like Paul's questioning their faith or allowing for the possibility that they'll lose their faith. You've got to continue on or you're cut off. But according to Greek scholars, of which I am not one, uh, that's not the sense here. Paul's not expressing doubt as to whether they will continue on. It's more like, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will, if indeed, Paul's not saying that, that there will be those who have true faith in the gospel, but for some reason, don't continue in it, and therefore will not be reconciled to God. Because when you have true faith in the gospel, you're reconciled to God then. It's not an, a later thing. He's saying that those who... Those with true faith will continue in it. And if some don't continue in it, if they don't persevere, then their faith was not true. They were never reconciled to God. 
We can be sure of this because of other passages that make it very clear. For example, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the message of reconciliation, and believed in him, when you believed, when you put your faith in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For those who truly believe, they receive the Holy Spirit, who's a guarantee of their inheritance. A guarantee, if you will, of the permanent, eternal reconciliation with God. Okay, I just wanted to be clear on that. Paul's not talking about people who truly believe and then reject their faith, but he is making a point. And that point is this, that saving faith is persevering and enduring faith. Anchored in hope, the hope of the gospel. And we must, therefore, be engaged in the continuance of our faith. It's not just a, it's not just a, a magical thing that happens within us. Our mind, our intellect, our, our, our hard emotions, and our will, our actions need to be involved. If we, if we are to continue to grow in faith, to continue in faith, our minds must feed on Christ and His Word. Our hearts must focus on His love, and our wills must follow Him in obedience. Put simply, the reconciled must respond by living for Christ. And of course, living for Christ, continuing in the faith, involves lots of stuff. Trusting in Christ, obedience to Christ, service to Christ, love for Christ, love for others as Christ commanded, and we could go on. But, but I want to end our time by focusing on what, what I mentioned in the beginning. This is a crucial, I believe, response to the reconciling work of Christ in our lives. And the response, and, and I focus on this for a couple reasons. One, because Paul certainly does, as we'll see in 2 Corinthians, but also because uh, I think we forget this, or we, well, we might not forget it, but we don't necessarily like it because it's hard. You know, all this theological stuff, of, okay, I believe and I'm reconciled, hallelujah, that's, uh, that's easy enough. That's the work of Christ. But then he says, and here's your response to that. And so I'm going to lay it on us, and just know I'm laying it on me too. I was talking, Christine and I were talking about this recently, and I say, well, yeah, we're, we, we need some help here, and so I'm going to help me and you. That response that's required, a must, for those who are reconciled to Christ is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are not reconciled to God. Paul hints it. Hints at it here in Colossians 1.23 when he, when he says, speaking of the gospel, and I, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What does it mean to be a minister of the gospel? Paul will go on in verses uh, 24 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 5, to focus on his ministry. His ministry, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was a missionary. He hit the road and he continually proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the hint. Paul, who was reconciled to God, became a minister, a proclaimer of the gospel. 
But you might say, uh, well, that's just fine for Paul, the great apostle. That's not me. And maybe the church in Corinth was saying something similar. Because in 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, Paul makes it very, very, very clear that the proclaiming of the gospel is a necessary response for all who are reconciled to God. And just to be clear, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying uh, this or anything is a earning of your reconciliation. That's a gift from God. It's a work of God. But as those who are reconciled, things should change in our hearts and there should be transformation and uh, this is part of it. We touched on it on these verses as we went through, but let me just read them all, making comments on the way. Starting in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5, going all the way to verse 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So I have questions. Questions, are you in Christ? If you're not, you know, I'm not, you don't have to leave, but this doesn't apply to you. But if you are, if you're expecting to uh, uh, be in heaven for all eternity with God, then this applies to you. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you been reconciled to God through Christ? Then God has and is in the process of making you a new creation. He's at work sanctifying you transforming you into who you are, one who is holy, blameless, above reproach, and he gave us those who he is making a new creation, those who are reconciled to himself, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Like Paul, all who are reconciled to God have been given this ministry. Oh, God, I pray, what's my ministry? What should I do? It's right here. Stop praying and do it. I mean, you can pray. You could pray this, God, thank you for telling me my ministry is that of reconciliation. How should I implement that today? And what's involved? So what's involved in, in this ministry? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God's part in the ministry of reconciliation, is reconciling the world to himself. He gets the hard part. He had to die on the cross for his part to make reconciliation with God possible. God does the reconciling through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and our part involves the message of reconciliation. We get a message. It's the message we've heard today in Colossians. It's the message of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And what are we to do with that message? Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for God, for Christ. God making his appeal through us. This could not be clearer. We're ambassadors. We represent Jesus Christ in this world. We are God's voice. We speak for God, about God, to a lost world. And what do we say? We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For, for our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin, 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On behalf of Christ, through Christ's supreme work of reconciliation, because Christ, who knew no sin, became sin, because Christ took your sin upon himself, that you might experience his righteousness, because of Christ, you can now be reconciled to God. That's what we've been talking about. Therefore, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the message. That's the urgent, crucial message we're to bring to a lost world. Now, we don't just go around on the street corner with a bullhorn, be reconciled to God, be re-, because people, what are you talking about? Because there's a lot more. The Bible has, has the explanation. We have some of it in Colossians today. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? How am I reconciled to God? Therefore, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. But that's our message. That's the heart of our message. And it's a message to a lost world. A world filled with people who are not good. They're God's enemies. No matter how good you think they are, God views them as enemies. He views them as alienated as hostile towards Him, as people who do evil deeds, were to tell them that through the finished work of Jesus Christ, they can be reconciled, restored, uh, begin anew, if you will, a relationship with the living God. So today, as we rejoice, and we should rejoice, in our own reconciliation with God, Do not forget the response, the responsibility of the reconciled. We're to continue in our faith, and we're to share our faith with others. We've been given a message, and it must be proclaimed. So I would just ask, even in this moment, take a moment. I'm going to give us a moment before I pray in just a second. To consider who, I mean, just just a, a name. Consider who in your world you can proclaim this message to. Who among your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. Who needs to hear that that through the supreme reconciling of work of Christ, they can be in a relationship with God. Who must we implore to be reconciled to God? I'll just give you a, a minute to consider that and then I'll close in prayer.